Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Welcome once again to another exciting episode of Chasing Hermes. I'm your host, Sean. And I'm your host, Jason. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing good, Jason. How have you been? Very, very good. Excellent, as a matter of fact. Excellent, as a matter of fact. Well, that's super. Mm. Today's episode is perhaps an episode that we should have done a long time ago, but I think that having a few of these episodes under our belt, it is now time to address the great and mythical Emerald Tablet of Hermes. Would you agree, Jason? Absolutely. I can't wait to get started. Very good. Well, I believe that most of our listeners are probably aware of the law of attraction, the quote-unquote law of attraction, popularized by such books or movies as The Secret and many other texts out there that you can find readily on your New Age shelf at Borders and Barnes and Noble. Can we mention bookstore names? Is that Do we get paid for that? I, I, I'll be patiently awaiting my check. Okay. And what The Secret, or Creative Visualizations, is trying to teach us is the concept that if we hold something in our imagination hard enough, or if we use a great power of intention, and perhaps wrap it with emotion and imagery, that over time, this according to the law of attraction, is supposed to be attracted to us or manifest in the physical world. You'd be surprised to know that the the law of attraction was coined already 100 years ago by a guy called William Walker Atkinson, who lived in Chicago. We might have reason to return to him in a later show because he's a really interesting guy. But what he was inspired by was the elusive, the illustrious, the... The mystical... That's right. The Emerald Tablet. And um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with it because of the big catchphrase, all together now, as as above, above, so so below. below. That's right. But that turns out to be just a small fraction of the entire text, the entire tablet. And uh, why not cover the entire thing here? Now, it should be said that this is a huge topic. It really is. And it's been the locus, I love that word, the <laughs> locus of imagination of so many authors and so many uh, mystics and alchemists and scientists over the past 2,000 years that you could really literally fill volumes and volumes of uh, interpretations on these seven simple lines of text. Most definitely. So it goes without saying that what we're going to cover here tonight is going to be just a small fragment of every possible interpretation that you could have, and we can't cover all of those. So naturally, we will only be able to cover a small portion of that. But hopefully when it's all said and done... We will all know a little bit more of the Emerald Tablet than just as above, so below. We'll also know as below, so above. Among many other things. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll get to that in due time. But first, a little bit of legend. Ooh, legend. Do we have legend music? We should, we should. We'll, we'll have right. to get some for the next episode. Excellent. Excellent. Legend has it that a man called Bellinus finds the emerald tablet in a cave. 
hidden in the sands of Egypt, maybe somewhere outside of Alexandria. He would have lived somewhere in the first century AD. And um, Bellinus decides to dig out the sands under a great big statue of Hermes Trismegistus because he's so fascinated with this character. And inside the cave that is underneath the statue, he finds the mummified corpse of Hermes Trismegistus himself. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. And uh, in his arms, he's clutching this object, this artifact, the Emerald Tablet. Cool. And uh, Bellinus is better known throughout history as Apollonius of Tyana. Uh, Or in his own time, he would only have been called the Tyanite. Um, But I think we'll have to return to him as well, because his story is really interesting too. While we're on the topic of legend, there's another legend that says that it was actually the uh, Macedonian king Alexander the Great who found the Tablet of Hermes and uh, buried it in that place. He, according to legend, was hell-bent on finding this elusive tablet, and uh, with the help of an oracle in Egypt, he eventually tracked it down in the tomb of Hermes. Ah, And he excavated the entire tomb and brought it back uh, into the city that he had erected in his name, Alexandria. One of many cities actually called Alexandria. He founded one pretty much in every country that he conquered. Alexandria that we know today is only the one that grew into something. Sure. Um, A lot of people don't know that. Um, So he brought the tablet to Alexandria and put it on display there. And um, uh, it was on public display for for people to see. One eyewitness uh, in this legend says that it was actually made of a precious stone and that it looked like emerald. Mm. And um, upon it were these characters, an ancient Phoenician Oh. And uh, but it was not engraved; it was actually in a bas relief, meaning that the the letters seemed to protrude out from the stone. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that part. And they were really amazed by the level of craftsmanship that had gone into the creation of this stone. So maybe Alexander found it three hundred years before Bellinus. Maybe it's possible. It's possible. Uh, there is a real difference between actual history and legendary history, and uh, we need to keep both in mind. I think. Sure. There are other authors who say that it was actually Abraham's wife, Sarah, who found it. That's a, an old Jewish tradition. Hmm. But whoever found it and whatever the tablet was made of, if it ever existed, we don't have it today. We don't have the actual tablet. It would be you know, an amazing artifact to find, like the Rosetta Stone of, of, of Hermetism, if you like. Yeah, and I think what's important to understand is that throughout antiquity, this tablet of Hermes, through its various names, has always been viewed with such esteem and importance that many peoples have wanted to trace their lineage back to this mystical tablet. Absolutely. Now, the Latin text that most of the West was exposed to only emerged in the 12th century. Okay. And uh, it was a translation of an Arab text called Advice to the Kings, which supposedly was a letter from Aristotle to Alexander the Great. As soon as it emerged, it caused a great stir in mm-hmm. the European intellectual circles. And a lot of people have written commentaries on it, and some surprising ones too. The teacher of Thomas Aquinas, Albertus Magnus, uh-huh. was a commentator on the tablet, and he gave his own Latin translation in one of his works in the 13th century. Another author which gave his own commentary was Sir Isaac Newton, 
but he never actually published any of his alchemical writings. Uh, he kept them secret. Mm. And uh, it was only after he was dead that some of these papers actually were discovered because they had, uh, he had ordered them to be burned after his death. He didn't want to be associated with these works because they were looked down upon in certain religious circles. That's right. And in fact, he has even been said to have been more of an alchemist than a scientist in that sense, in that, in that his interest lay more in the alchemical worlds and the hermetic worlds than they lay in the scientific and rational world that he has been remembered and renowned for today. Certainly. But enough about Newton. Let's get into the actual text itself. Let's. Let's. So the text is divided into seven parts. And why don't you go ahead and read us the first strophe? Yes. Truly, without deceit, certain and most veritable. Yeah, that seems clear enough, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. But the question is, what kind of truth are we talking about? Are we talking about a mystical truth or a theological truth or a historical truth? What kind of truth is this? It, it would seem to me that by reciting synonyms of true or truth four times in a row would indicate an intention of absolute truth, capital T, as opposed to just accidental truths, lowercase t. My personal interpretation of this is that the author is trying to say look, what you're going to read now is not going to make sense to you, but if you apply yourself to understanding it, it will unravel itself to you, and you will see that truth with capital T. Certainly. Okay, so why don't we move on to uh, strophe number two? All right, certainly. This is one we'll all find most familiar. That which is below corresponds to that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below, to accomplish the miracles of the one entity. And just as all things come from the one entity, through the mediation of its one mind, so do all created things originate from this one entity, through transformation. I like that. Wow, that's a bite size. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> um, well, let's start from the beginning. Okay, so, so here we have it the core of the emerald tablet that which is below corresponds to that which is above and that which is above corresponds to that which is below to accomplish the miracles of the one entity or sometimes called one thing yes so it it's really not just saying what is up there also happens down here right no it's saying several things first of all it has a purpose Mm -hmm. Right, it, to accomplish the miracles of the one thing or one entity, and whenever we're talking about the one in the Emerald Tablet, the translations will often write that one with a capital O, which is to say that this is something transcendental, mm -hmm. that this is something of divine origin or divine nature. Yeah, the as above, so below part has been called the Hermetical Postulate or sometimes the doctrine of correspondences. And it really is the foundation for a lot of practices. I mean, remember when we were talking about the microcosm and the macrocosm, right? Yeah. We can really apply that teaching to the above-below concept, that there is a correspondence, um, there is an interface, if you will, between this outside and inside, between this above and below. Right, and just as the macrocosm corresponds to the microcosm, so too does the microcosm reflect the macrocosm. Exactly. For the purpose of the miracle. For the purpose of accomplishing the miracle of the one thing. And 
I believe that we can easily see how this relates to man being created in God's image. Absolutely, and as we saw in the Corpus Hermeticum, in Hermetism, we have the same type of kinship between the Creator and the created. Mm -hmm. Now, let's make a couple of definitions here. When we're talking about the one thing or one entity, um, what we're talking about is kind of the totality of all of creation, but at the same time also the very essence of being itself. Mm -hmm. It is kind of the radix or root of all, right? Yeah, being qua being. Ah, yes. Now, the one thing or one entity is the only thing that can truly be said to exist. When we look around us and we see all the stuff and all the air and water and fire and earth, they have a transcendent quality to them. And they have something absolutely unintelligible because these things are expressions of this one root, this one ultimate substance, which has its abode in this world we call above. Mm -hmm. So that was the one thing or one entity. And then we have the one mind and the Greek translation would, of course, say noose here. We keep mm -hmm. coming back to this noose. Yes. If, if the one thing was the totality of matter, then the one mind is the totality of mind. It is also the universe as an ultimate archetype or a storehouse of archetypes. Hmm. And it's because of these archetypes and because of this one mind that we can have this relationship between the thought and the form, between the ideal and the real, sure, and if you will, between the essence and the matter. As we say in the Golden Dawn tradition, by names and images are all powers awakened and reawakened. Exactly. And these all powers express themselves as the third type of being, which is the many things, the multitudes and the many separate expressions in the created world. So the one thing, by the cause of the one mind, expresses itself in a diversity that we can live and breathe and enjoy on a daily basis. It, it's so beautiful when you think about it. Very poetic. It is very poetic. And I think the Emerald Tablet really is a work of art. Mm -hmm. It's not a dissertation. And it is a work of art that needs to be analyzed. So Clearly. And all these many things, all these expressions have their root in the divine realm. It ha they have their root in God. And eventually, they will return to him to glorify him. And we may find that it's man himself or herself that contains the potentiality for the highest form of divine expression. Exactly. What this postulate, this hermetical postulate also does, is that it aligns us along a vertical axis. It's saying, you, human being, exist somewhere on a sliding scale that goes between the above and the below, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And if you can raise your mind mm -hmm. into the one mind, then you can see the one thing is actually the same in both worlds. They're the same in the above and in the below. And you can come to see one day that, quote unquote, I and my father are one. There you go. Speaking of father, let's head on to the third stroke. All right. Its father is the sun, its mother the moon. The wind carries it in its belly, its nurse is the earth. The origin of all the perfection of the world is here. Its force is entire if it is converted into earth. Okay, many concepts here. 
Let's talk about the sun and the moon. Its father is the sun, that is S-U-N, not S-O-N. Mm-hmm. And its mother is the moon, right? So what do we know about the sun and the moon in astrological terms? Well, clearly the sun provides its life-giving rays unto the earth. And without the sun's light, life would not exist on the earth. In this sense, it provides the seed of life itself. Uh, the moon regulates the tides of the ocean. It regulates the fluctuations, the flux and influx. Um, in mankind, the cycles of the woman are in tune with the moon itself. So it is through this alchemical essence of the moon that the egg is provided to receive the seed of the sun. Right. So you have this idea of the divine seed um, being sent into the earth, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. It is something that is carried in the world, in the physical world around us, right. and we need to kind of rescue us and perfect it. Hmm. So the perfection arises out of the earth, but it still needs to be converted into earth. Now, what we have to realize here that is that they're not talking only about earth as physical matter. They're talking about it as the gross, the dense, right. the substance itself. The material. Right? We have, yeah, because we, we have this polarity between the subtle and the gross. Mm -hmm. Which, again, is another reflection of what is being more clearly defined here as the above and the below. Here now, it's being spelled out for us just what is being referred to of the things above and the things below, and how important the below or the gross is in receiving this higher divine influx, the seed of the divine from the sun, uh, in order to perfect the one thing. Right. And many alchemists spent days and weeks out of the year to seek out what they believed were pure seeds in nature, and that mm -hmm. really the origin of, of, of their salvation, of their perfection, was to be found in nature. But you had to apply these spiritual principles to the seed once you had found it. Now, C.G. Jung, the famous psychoanalyst, mm -hmm. talks about the mystery of conjunction in one of his books. And conjunction is one of these alchemical terms that I'm sure we will return to. And he talks about this, this type of perfection the first step is to purify the learner current, mm -hmm. which is to say that you analyze your physical and emotional natures and you negate them, you deny them in order to release its hold over you. And after you've purified this lunar current, you then find the subtle, which is held captive by the gross, by the earth, and you liberate that. What that is to say is that you find those fleeting seeds of greatness that we have within us and we allow them free reign sure after we have liberated them from the tyranny of the physical and the emotional most certainly the third step after that would then be to harmonize this purified lower lunar ego with this higher solar self which is to say that you resolve that inner conflict between your lower drive, which has now been purified to mind high things, and your higher aspirations, your super ego, your, your, your true self. So what we're coming to discover are the parts of ourselves that are accidental or non-essential. And we're differentiating that from 
a higher understanding of those parts of our nature, the parts of our soul, that are essential to who we are as human beings. And some might say that these are the divine aspects of mankind, because it's only our divine nature that can persist through these alchemical operations, such as conjunction. And once these operations come to completion, we find that we are more aware of our, our truer nature, as you have put it. Some might even make the analogy here with freeing yourself from original sin and find sure. the parts of yourself that are not motivated by a divine ideal. And then what happens? Okay, then we come to strophe number four. Separate the earth from the fire, the subtle from the gross, gently and with great ingenuity. It rises from the earth to heaven and descends again to earth thereby receiving the force of both things superior and inferior. Mm. Separate the subtle from the gross. There you have it. Solve et coagula. Dissolve and coagulate. Mm -hmm. Right, so this is how it's done now. So any alchemical operation will involve these two fundamental steps. You want to dissolve the gross, and you want to coagulate the subtle. And what that means is that you want to lessen the influence of the lower, and you want to solidify the influence of the higher and make it permanent. Mm. So it rises from earth to heaven and descends again to earth. We take something that is physical and we purify it until all that is left is the archetype. All that is left is an ex true expression of the one thing. And we're representing the abode of the one mind, the divine will and divine thought in the world mm -hmm. of the below, i.e. the reflection of this mind. So we see the above descending to the earth. So is it enough to merely fantasize about the things we want to attract into our lives and hope that they come to manifestation. Well, I think we can see a difference here between imagination and fantasy. The difference being that imagination is something that is the faculty of creative thought, right? It is a faculty of God that is mirrored in man. So imagination is our way of pre-planning something to happen. And it is through this faculty that our thought and intention can meet and even mingle and co-create with powers that are way outside of our own consciousness. Oh, so we can definitely say then that the difference between fantasy and imagination is that by definition, imagination contains that divine creative force which necessitates that what is being created manifests. Absolutely. And the key here is, again, in the text, in that you isolate this fire from the earth. You take the subtle, mm -hmm. and you raise it up from the earth to heaven, again, from the below to the above, and then let it descend again mm -hmm. by dissolving your wish and then coagulating it again after it has been up in the above. And then you're letting that imagination again descend into earth and bringing with it the substance that you have attracted. By the power of the divine, the power of the one mind, it becomes so. Exactly. 
This is the law of attraction in a nutshell. Mm, by names and images shall it be. We have arrived now at the uh, fifth part, and it reads as follows. In this way, you shall obtain the glory of the whole world, and thereby all obscurity shall fly away from you. This is a force strong with all forces, for it overcomes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. Oh, the glory of the whole world that overcomes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. An alchemist would say that this force that overcomes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing is the stone. It is the elixir. It's something that has completed the work that represents this perfection and carries qualities with it on the physical plane that transcends the below and into the above. Correct? Sure, by its very nature, it is materialized spirit and spiritualized matter. And it is the thing that makes all obscurity fly away, as it says in the text. Because the stone, like you say, is a solid, unchanging, permanent mm -hmm. realization of the above, of spirit but represented as a physical object. Sure, we say that it is the manifestation of God on earth, or the divine eminence that has radiated and manifested clearly, physically, among us. So that by holding the stone, by gazing upon the stone, it is as though you're gazing upon the divine itself. Many men and women have spent their lives looking for the stone, for the elixir. And we can see why. Because the allure of this object, the pull of the perfection, is so strong that I think it can turn people absolutely mad with desire for it. Sure, we've all heard references to it as having the power to turn lead to gold. Um, but more importantly, it has the power that just by being in the presence of this stone, of this philosopher's stone, it has the power to divinize or to make the gross more subtle, so that any person in its proximity becomes closer to God just in virtue of being near it. Absolutely. The stone has completed the journey. It has completed perfection. It has risen to the above and has completed his work there. And it has descended to the below. And within its nature, you have both worlds in an alloy that is incredibly powerful. It is also the ultimate catalyst. It coagulates the subtle and it dissolves the gross without ever wearing out. Mm. It has also been said about the stone that because it's so perfect, that its perfection is contagious, that it can actually turn other objects perfect as well just by being near it. Might we say that that is the miracle of the one thing, is this product. Exactly this offspring, this alchemical offspring of the divine. Exactly. Now, we can probably see a cautionary tale in the tale of King Midas here, in that you have to still have a firm footing in the mundane in order to even approach mm -hmm. such an object. <laughs> I love gold! The taste of it, the smell of it, the, the texture. texture. All right, let's see here. <clears throat> okay, number six. In this way the world was created. From this will come many admirable applications, the means of which is in this. So through this very process, the perfection, 
the glorification of the one, the miracle of the one thing, was the world created. That's right. We discussed this to some degree in the episode of the Corpus Hermeticum when we talked about the Hermetic creation myth. And again, we have this idea of the above and the below and, in, and the vertical interaction thereof. And what the Emerald Tablet is saying is that you can emulate this creative process and you can apply it admirably, mm-hmm. right? So just as there is this grand creation by the grand creator, we, being human, have been created in the image of this grand creator and we can bring forth little creations or applications ah, of this same principle. Becoming co-creators. That's right. And these applications are, for example, alchemy, right? Mm-hmm. Or theurgy. Sure. The word for perfection in Latin is telesma, which is the root word for talisman. Mm-hmm. And um, talismans work by corresponding to a prototype, uh, an ideal, Mm -hmm. on the subtle plane and making that manifest in the physical plane. That's the transformation or the process of a talisman. Oh, very exciting. We should do a show on that. We should, definitely, as has been suggested by our listeners. Mm -hmm. And finally. And finally, the last and seventh part. Therefore... I am called Hermes Trismegistus, having the three parts of the philosophy of the whole world. What I have said of the operation of the sun is finished. Tetelastai. (laughs) So, Trismegistus, thrice greatest. Not just doubly great. Oh no, that is not great enough. That was last year. (laughs) (laughs) Thrice great. He's thrice great. He's super duper great. Mm -hmm. Um, There is an Egyptian hymn that has been discovered in a tomb, um, an Egyptian hymn to Thoth. And in there, it calls Thoth by name and says, you are great, great, great are you, O Thoth. Huh. So that's That's probably where it comes from. Yeah. And uh, the conglomerate of Alexandrian Egypt between Hermes and Thoth into the new entity, Hermes Thoth, um, then borrowed this title, Thrice Greatest. But there have been other um, interpretations of that as well, that there were three incarnations of Hermes, um, or maybe in alchemical sense that it refers to the three kingdoms, the vegetal kingdom, the mineral kingdom, and the animal kingdom. Mm, Well, and perhaps it applies to all of the above. Perhaps. Again, this this is art. Uh, sometimes the process of interpretation is really where the gold lies. Because they wouldn't have been able to say the infactorial greatest. One, two, three, many. (laughs) (laughs) The one, two, three, many greatest. (laughs) And then the operation of the sun is a cyclical operation. Mm -hmm. It is something that that happens again and again. And it also hints at the significance of Helios, or Apollo, or Ra, depending on which mythology you are more comfortable with. Belinus took his name from Apollo, the sun god. That's why he was called Apollonius. And uh, he devoted his life to the study of the sun and the mystery of the sun. 
It's interesting. And, and here we see that not only is the sun above, but through the operation of the one thing, now the sun is born within the earth itself. And therefore, the operation continues. So now we see the above reflecting the below and the below reflecting the above in yet another way. So what you're saying is that or when we have achieved this perfection, not only does the sun rise in the physical plane, it also rises within you. Exactly. And therefore, we have the power of the sun within us to transmute those around us. A golden dawn. Well, I think that about wraps up this week's episode, wouldn't you say? We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. I learned something today, Jason. I learned that not only as above, so below, but also as below, so above. But for a purpose. To accomplish the miracle of the one thing. Of the one thing. Exactly. To all our listeners out there, keep chasing Hermes and keep looking for that one thing because it will open up many doors to you. Thanks for joining us. Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at chasinghermes.com. To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com.